feel a little distracted this morning. We've got uh, just a lot going on. We have pretty intense passage, and uh, so I just want to take a deep breath as a church um, and uh, pause for a moment and pray uh, before we dig into God's Word and maybe just kind of uh, kind of make sure we're all focused where we need to be. So if you bow your heads. Father, as we, uh, as we come to your word this morning, um, we do recognize that uh, our identity is not in what we own. Um, our identity is not in um, a denomination. Um, it's not in a place. It's not in a style. Um, it's not even in a nation. But who we are, as we celebrated this morning, is because of the love of God, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and pulling us out of where we had been, darkness, and into the light. And Lord, we recognize that being a follower of Jesus is more than just coming to church. Um, It's more than giving of our money or singing a song. And so God, I just pray that as a church, as a people, that you would speak to us this morning. God, I believe that you're calling us to something greater. Uh, to be a people that um, has a greater impact on this community. And so, Lord, I I pray that we would not just go through the motions, but that we would listen to what your Spirit is saying to us. Um, So, Lord, just refocus us this morning. Uh, Help us to come to your word with anticipation. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter chapter 2. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as spiritual houses to the holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a a capstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. And they were destined as they were destined to do. But you are chosen race a royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we looked at this passage last week. Um, We were focusing in on verses 1 through 8, but we kind of looked at the whole section, and we talked about growing in redemption. That is, that when we come to Christ, we're growing in our relationship with Christ, and what does that redemption look like? 
And we said that we have a new way, a new community, and a new identity. And the new way, uh, considering the identity that we live in, uh, we do certain things that don't kill that community, right? That's the malice and the deceit and hypocrisy. We, We have a new way of doing things in community. And that community is centered on Jesus and his word. And the new identity is really what we're focusing on today. And our identity is is new um, in that when we come to Christ, we are new creations and we have this new way of of relating, but the actual identity is historic. Paul has all sorts of Old Testament ideas in here that he is reminding us of. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up in church, We studied the Old Testament like in Sunday school as little kids. Um, And then when we got to junior high and high school, we mostly focused on the New Testament. And if we have Jesus and he's, God loves us and Jesus died for our sins and he rose again on the third day, which all is true, like what do we need all that Old Testament stuff for? And I teach Old Testament survey at Corbin And I'm just telling you, there's a whole generation of kids that really don't know a lot of the Old Testament stories. And in this passage, Peter's got a bunch of them. And so why? Why does Peter want us to connect with that historic identity if we have a new covenant? What's his purpose in this? Peter doesn't want us just to believe differently. Now, don't misunderstand me. He wants you to believe in God. He wants you to believe in Jesus. But that's not Al. That's not it. He doesn't want you just to live differently. Now, don't misunderstand me again, right? Because the whole next section is about how to live in exile, what our conduct is. But that's not it. Paul, or Peter doesn't just want us to believe or act differently. He wants us to live with a totally different reality. Now, I'm a dad of three daughters, and so I have watched my share of princess movies over the years. And to be honest, I can go, you know, a whole lifetime without watching anymore. Um, But I have grandkids, so I know it's not going to happen, right? But there's one, there's kind of a theme in some of the Disney movies, and and there's variants. But one of them is in a movie, it's called Princess Diaries. And in Princess Diaries, there's this gal who's an outcast at her school. Uh, She lives in San Francisco. She's just, she's not the cool kid. She looks a little off, um, and she doesn't know how to speak very well. And especially if, if a boy is involved, she just freaks out. And basically what happens is this grandma shows up and tells her that she's really a princess and she's heir to the throne and all this stuff and then teaches her how to be a princess. It's like she goes through her whole life and her mom's like, yeah, I just didn't want to let you know. Thought it would be too much pressure. What we find out that when we come to Christ, not only are we saved from our sins, Not only do we have the Holy Spirit, not only do we have the hope of heaven, but what he's revealing to us is you are prince and princesses to the king. And Peter wants us to live in reality of who we are. So we're going to look at this morning who we are, where we are, and how we are to live. Who we are, where we are, and how we are. So who we are. In this passage, there's five plus identity markers that that Peter is alluding to. Now, last week, I kind of introduced this a little bit, but let me say it again. I was listening to uh, the Bible Project uh, podcast, which I I listened to on the way to and from uh, Corbin, and I just just love those guys, and it's it's really exciting. And uh, Tim had this term that he used, called hyperlink, okay? Now, 
for some of you who, you know, don't, aren't really computer savvy, but when you're on a website and there's a little something highlighted and you can click on it and it takes you to another part of the website, that's a hyperlink. And so what Tim was saying is that there's all these hyperlinks in the Bible that when you come to it, it's like a key phrase that's supposed to take you back to another part of a story. And Peter is just filling this with it. And so when you come to that hyperlink, you're not supposed to just go, oh, we're a chosen race. Oh, we're a holy nation. We're the priesthood. You're supposed to think about all the things that were said about that previously and enter that into the conversation that Peter's doing. And Grant, Peter's writing to Gentiles, okay? He's not writing to just Jewish people who know the whole Old Testament. So if you want just one lesson in general, Peter is saying, read your Old Testament because it's important. And so here we are. Here's the hyperlinks in here. The first identity is a spiritual house. Verse five it says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house. What, what comes to your mind? Just think for a second. When Peter says spiritual house, what comes to your mind? For me, it was the temple. That's where my mind went. And if it was just here in 1 Peter, I might not just make that hyperlink. But, but Paul says this as well. You are the temple. And so I think here Peter is talking about the temple. So what's the purpose of the temple? At least three things, more than that, but three things that come to mind. First of all, the temple is where God's presence was. Now, God is everywhere present all the time. Don't get me wrong. But there was a special place in the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God showed up. Now we're reading through, you should be reading through the Old Testament with us, and we just have this new temple that Solomon finished, and it was filled with smoke. You go, well, that doesn't sound good. They need to get some smoke detectors in there, right? I mean, who's, who's on that job? No, when it, when it says it was filled with smoke, what's, what, is, what is the author telling us? That God showed up. It's the pillar in the Old Testament. He's saying God's presence came to the temple. Now, also, when God's presence shows up, we also have God's holiness. And when you think of the temple, you think of a place where before you went up to it, you were offering sacrifices. You were purifying yourself to go to the temple where God's presence was. So we have God's presence and God's temple, uh, God's uh, holiness. And then finally, it's a place where God's power often showed up. Now, God does things everywhere all the time again, but, but the temple was a place where you went to have your sins forgiven. Uh, you might go there for healing or restoration, or if there was a relational problem or a family problem, you went to the temple. And so we have all these imageries of what happens at the temple. And Peter says, you, you all are a spiritual house. You're a place where God's presence shows up. You're a place where God's holiness is pointed out. You're a place where God works his power through you. You are a spiritual house. Now he also, uh, as he's saying this, he says, I'll go back to verse five, you like living stones being built up into a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he has this reference to this cornerstone that's rejected. And, and I would say that this is one of Peter's favorite passages. He keeps, he keeps coming back to it. And so we kind of need to understand it a little bit. I mean, he comes back to it here. He preaches about it other places. Peter, Peter had this, this passage in the forefront of his mind. The rejected stone. It's mentioned in Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, I think in Daniel 2, which we'll come back to. But sometimes it's just helpful to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So Jesus referred to being this rejected stone in Matthew chapter 21. So let's 
look at how Jesus uses this term. He's a pretty safe theologian and interpreter of Scripture, so we'll let him do it. In Matthew chapter 21, we have the triumphal entry and uh, Jesus is uh, speaking in parables uh, after the cleansing of the temple. Uh, And in this uh, final, uh, uh, well, not final, but in the midst of this, he tells the parable of the tenants, okay? Here another parable, verse 33, Matthew chapter 21. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. Got to stop there. That's a hyperlink. Okay, sorry. It's like Old Testament language for Israel. Okay, Israel is God's vineyard. So he's like, wait, man planted, oh, this is God. Okay, and he planted a vineyard. People that were listening, I'm just telling you, people that were listening to this parable already knew all the players. Okay, they didn't need any interpretation here. Oh, this is God, and you're speaking about us. And he put a fence around it and dug a wine press, and in it he built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent out other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw that the son... They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Where therefore therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the tenants? So he he poses the question. What do you think the owner's going to do? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. And let the vineyard, let out the vineyard to other tenants. Oh, this is, they couldn't be any more prophetic here. Exactly what Jesus is about to do. Good answer. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it was marvelous in his eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. Now, just in case you're going, yeah, did they really understand what Jesus was saying? Verse 44, and the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them, and although they were seeking to arrest him, They feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Right there, there was like, let's just get rid of this guy. Now, what Jesus is saying is that the vineyard, and now Peter's saying, has been given to us. What was the purpose of the vineyard? To produce fruit. And so, we now are the vineyard, and we are to produce fruit. Now, it's interesting, Jesus uses the term of this stone crashing, which really hyperlinks you to Daniel chapter 2. If you remember the story where Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of this incredible statue with a gold head and bronze and all this kind of stuff, and then in the dream, this stone is cut out, and thrown at the statue, and it breaks it into pieces. And these pieces all represented nations. And so what the dream is about is this new nation, which really is where Peter is going to go in all of this. But we, we are a truly spiritual house, filled with God's presence, and called to produce fruit. Now you're getting a little bit worried because we've only looked at one and there's four more, but we got to go a little bit faster. Next, uh, a holy or royal priesthood. Uh, if you look at verse 9, it says, uh, but you are chosen race, a royal priesthood. And I'm taking these out of the order here because priesthood uh, is used earlier in this passage. Again, in verse 5, you like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house 
a holy priesthood. And then in verse 9, he says, a royal priesthood. So when you think of priesthood, okay, here's the hyperlink. What do you think of? You think of the Levites. But the hyperlink goes back further than that. Because at one point, when God is pulling his people out of Egypt, he calls them the priesthood, all of them. But it goes back even further. It goes all the way back to the garden. Because in the garden, God has man and woman, humanity and life, their names, in the garden, and he gives them a job. And the job, he says, is to work and keep the garden. Now, that's, that seems pretty easy. You go, I get it. They're, they're supposed to be gardeners. But the amazing thing is, in the story, right, the first five books of the Bible are one group of books, one, one really story. And when he introduces the Levites, when he, when he says, you are going to, here's your job. He says, you're going to work and keep. Same words from Genesis. In fact, we translate the word work in the later books in Numbers, we translate it minister. But it's really the same word work that he gave to Adam and Eve. So in the garden, there's two responsibilities, to work and to keep. Now, before we get to the Levitical priesthood, we have the nation of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, God is bringing his people out, and he says to the nation, He says to the group of people um, these words. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. Peter just used some of that language. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, These are the the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So, obviously, all these terms, Peter is keying on them. And he says, look, just like the nation was called out, now you, a people, are called out to be this holy nation. So let's think about, then that gets wrapped up into a certain tribe, the tribe of Levi that becomes the priesthood. What What do the priests do? Well, it's a community. They're a group of a family that lives in community and takes care of the temple and takes care of the religious things uh, in Israel. And it's really great to read the story because there's sometimes, like in Judges, where, where things are going so bad that you have priests running around looking for work. Second, it's authoritative. That community has some leadership responsibility as it relates to the law and how it applies to Israel. Now, unfortunately, they do a poor job So God sends prophets who kind of keep bringing them back. But then it's also purposeful. It's not just a term. It's not just a phrase. The Levites represent the people before God. They represent the people before God. And look, what we we live in a world where people are separated from God. People are at odds with God. And some of them, as God begins to work in their heart, they don't know what to do. How do I fix this problem? Who is going to represent me before God? You are. You're a priest. Now, I know what your answer is when somebody goes, man, I really have some questions about this whole church, God, Jesus thing. You say, good, well, we have a pastor Let's get you in there to talk to him. I just want to just stop for a minute. He's not saying the pastor is the priest. He's saying y'all are. You all are part of that community as followers of Jesus Christ. So we purchased a bunch of collars that you can wear around. No. Sorry. So the priest represents the people before God, but it also represents God before the people. Right? There's also a point where we say, look, and especially because he's using some other terms here, he uses holy and royal. When you think of royal, you think of the king, and the king's job is often to go, wait a second, this is what God told us 
And here, so he's using both terms and he's using them interchangeably. And he's saying, look, we have a responsibility as the leaders of this thing that we are going to help people and we're going to represent them before God. And we also need to remind them of what God is saying to us. Now, also the Levitical group had the, uh, the job of interpreting and applying scripture. Now, I, was, I, I know I get really excited about this stuff, and, and uh, sometimes I realize what a nerd I am when I'm trying to teach college students. And so this week we were talking about the law, and I, just, I, I was so excited about how I'd set this up. And I'm, I'm like, you know, they had this big debate after, you know, they were in Babylon and they're coming back and they're putting the whole Old Testament together. And one rabbinical priest uh, guy comes and he says there's 611 laws. And he had it really interesting broken up. There's 365 days of the year and these are all the positive laws. And then whatever the number is uh, left over um, is is, uh, the negative laws, the the thou shalt not. And then, um, and he, he, puts this together with some belief about body parts or something like there's that many body things. So he had all these things. So there's 611 laws. And then this other rabbinical priest kind of says, no, there's 613 laws. And I got these written up on the board. And so then I just sat there and waited. I thought for sure somebody wanted to know what the two different laws were. Nobody bit. And they're finally, I'm like, What? I'm like, you guys aren't seeing, they're like, you obviously want to say something, just say it. (laughs) But the point is that the Levitical group was to take God's word and interpret it and give it to the people in a way that they can understand it and remember it. And that's what they were doing. And so we are given this responsibility to be God's representatives. It's an amazing thing that he's saying. Got to keep going. A chosen race. Um, No, I'm not going to tell you what the two are. I'm just going to leave that with you. Um, I did that on purpose. The hyperlink here is is obviously Abraham. Uh, Abraham is called out uh, to be this this chosen group, right? He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And and then also uh, we have some... some, uh, part of Isaiah 43 here. Can you put the next? Oh, man, I put it out of order. I'm sorry. Um, keep going through it. Is there a verse that's coming up? There we go. We'll have to go back. Uh, to give a drink to my, this kind of comes up in the middle of some verses in 43, and he's got some poetic language and these animals and these different things. To give drink to my chosen people, whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So, Peter is recognizing that that now the church, followers of Jesus Christ, those in this new community, are part of this chosen race. Now, we use race very specific. Peter is not using this as a group of racial identity of a people group. He is saying that all these nations who follow Jesus Christ, regardless of where their national boundaries are, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the language they speak, they all come together and become one race of people. That's an amazing thought. And that race of people, just like Abraham, were called out. Were called out. Abraham was in Ur, which just by the way, just to make it just all kind of come together, it's basically Babylon. And he says, he calls him out of Babylon, and he says, I'm going to make you a nation, and I'm going to give you a people, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to um, make your name great, and I'm going to bless the nations through you, and all these things. And, and what Peter is saying is, you are that holy. God has blessed the nations through Abraham in the person of Jesus Christ. So he's called them out, and then they're brought in to a new group. Called out and brought in. And I think think we have trouble with the brought in part. Because we've been called into this new community, 
And this community is not Hillsborough First Baptist Church. This new community is all believers of all time together in this group of people that are called out to be his representatives. And that community is special. And so he called them out, he brought them in, and then he sent them out. He said, now I want you to go, and I want you to be a light to the other nations. And in the verse, specifically, it says, whom I have uh, formed for myself that they might declare my praise. That's being sent out to declare his praise. Called out, brought in, and sent out. Fourth, we're a holy nation. This group has become a whole nation. You could go back to uh, Exodus 19 again, where they are being brought out of the Holy Land, uh, bring out of Egypt, uh, sent to the Holy Land. And let me just say this. There's a repeated thing, a hyperlink that keeps happening. It was in Exodus 19, and it, it goes throughout. It was in our reading this week, when you're reading from uh, about Solomon. It just keeps coming up, and it, and it says, look, here's what's going to happen. I will continue to bless you, but you need to listen to my voice. You need to listen. He said it again to Solomon this week. He said, hey, if you keep doing what I'm telling you to do, so we need to obey his commands. We need to listen and obey. Listen to God, obey his commands, and then Worship him alone. Uh, that one's not always specifically stated, but that's, that's the problem that, that we keep getting into, right? They keep bringing in these other gods and these other things. You're a holy nation. Listen, folks, you are called to listen to God's voice. And I know I'm talking to a group of conservative Baptists, and so that just freaked a bunch of you out. So let me just define that a little bit. How do we hear God's voice? I'm going to say it through the Holy Spirit. Second, through his word. Now, I would tie those two together. We often hear the Holy Spirit as we are going through God's word. Third, we hear it through the community. God uses other people in the community to say, man, I just want to speak something into you. I, I want to remind you. I, I feel like God's, I, I, I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about that. I just, God uses, those are at least three areas. There's a few more. Um, those are the three primary ways that God speaks with, through his Holy Spirit, through his word, through his people. And we are so individualistic. That when people say something, we go, eh, nah, probably not. When we see something in God's word, we say, I don't think that applies to me. The Holy Spirit has been speaking for so long and we've been ignoring it that we don't even hear it anymore. Listen to God's voice, obey his commands, worship him alone. Now look again at verse nine. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, we saw the, that word, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I'm just we, just, we just barely had time to touch on these passages, but now you've heard those words. P Peter isn't just pulling those words out of, oh, this will sound good. He is tying us into this historic faith. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're here this morning, and you don't know if you're part of this nation, this priesthood, this group, then you're not sure if you've received mercy. Then... then then you might be living in a state of separation from God. This story all accumulates in the person of Jesus Christ, 
who was the prophet, the priest, the king, the Messiah that the Old Testament was anticipating. And when he came, his people, Israel, rejected him. And he said, that's all right. I've got another people. And I'm going to give them your job. And I'm going to make them into a nation of people. And just so you know, if you decide not to take it, he'll pick up the rocks and make them a nation if he has to. But he, dry bones, he's done that one before. So, you know, be careful. God's given you a position responsibility. But if you're not a part of that, we invite you to enter in to that family through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you've been to some churches where the pastor tells you, then all your life will be perfect. Um, I hate to tell you, but we're going to get into uh, this next week, and that's not what Peter says. Spoiler alert, he says, you get to suffer. Uh, Peter has not read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And obviously, neither is Jesus. And so, he, if you are here this morning and need to know how to receive mercy from God, we call you to do that. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... So we're also a love community. Now here, in, in verse 11 and 12, we are beginning to switch gears in the book and uh, the writing here of 1 Peter. And Peter is going to do two things. We're going to address these real quickly. He's going to address, who, again, who we are. And then he's going to give us his thesis statement for why we're to live differently. And that's really where we're going to go in the next few weeks. And it gets difficult. I just want to tell you right now, Peter's setting you up for this is going to get really hard. And so I want to remind you of this. Listen, church. Peter's about to get real, real difficult. And so he starts that by calling you loved. I want to remind you that God loves you. And I, I was praying about this this morning. Um, you know, I, I know that God loves me. I know that. Theologically, I can give you the verses if you want. And I preach, I hope, reminding people that God loves you. But sometimes when it really comes to believing and applying that God actually specifically loves me, it's easier for me to believe he loves you. And I think we all need to be reminded that God, he doesn't just love you in a kind of like, hey, love you, man. He loves us in a personal, real, in-depth way. He knows you like nobody else knows you. He knows your thoughts and your fears and your failures. He knows your theological misguided thoughts. He knows, your, he knows the, the things that you said in secret. He knows, he knows it all, and he loves you deeply. And so he's about to get real real and up in our face, as the kids say today. They don't say that, but who knows? And before he does that, he says, I want to remind you that God loves you. Beloved, that's your title. That's your identity. It's who you are. So Peter reminds us that we're sojourners, that we're just passing through. That the things that you're holding on, the things that you're worried about, and the things that you think are going awry in our nation or not or whatever, just, Peter just goes, just so you remember, you're just passing through. Man, I just love it when somebody goes on vacation and they go to a new city and they go, oh man, I love that city. I think I want to live there someday. And I was, you know what? Cities look a lot different when you're on vacation. 
and you're eating at the finest restaurants and going to shows and don't have to be to work every day. That place looks sweet. The problem with my city is I got to go to work when I get back to my city. Look, this isn't your home. You're just passing through. Second, he calls us exiles, and he's using all this Old Testament language as we talked about. This is not your home. And so I want to remind you, just real briefly, and I'm finishing up, that we belong to God. We don't belong to a nation or to a place. We belong to God. We are his group of people in his servants. We belong to God. And you and I, regardless of what's going on around us in our city, in our nation, in our world, we're called to continually praise God. Because it's his world. It's his place. Because we've received mercy. We have something the world knows nothing of. Now, when Israel was in exile in Babylon, they, uh, um, they didn't have a temple. Uh, they didn't have, uh, they didn't even have, as in Jesus' day, they didn't even have these many temples. In fact, those didn't show up. The synagogues didn't show up until uh, after, uh, way later, up until just before Jesus is on the scene. So they didn't have a synagogue. They didn't have a local church. And so what nation of Israel did, and what we see even, even in the New Testament, is that there was times when God's people would just find a place to meet. It was often down by the river. A place where people did their laundry. And they would meet together. And they would talk about how things used to be. And they would remind themselves of God's promises. And they would celebrate the things that God said he was going to do. And they would read the verses about repentance and they would repent. And they would wait in anticipation. Exiles would ask themselves, how do we keep our identity living in this place? This God-forgotten, awful, idol-worshiping, sick and demented. How do we live here and still be people of God? Well, let's talk about what it means to be God's people living outside of God's place. And that's kind of what 1 Peter is encouraging us to do. What does it look, for, look like for us to kind of figure out how to live our identity? These are questions that we need to ask. And so we come to the last section then. How are we uh, to live? How do we do it? So look at verses 11 and 12 again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is his thesis statement for what's going to be very difficult coming up in the rest of chapter 2 and into chapter 3. And it has two general points. Number one, you're to abstain. There are certain things that in exile you abstain from because they're just going to pollute you. And what, what story comes to mind when you think about this? Daniel. Daniel's living in exile. And he says, I'm not going to eat that food. It's going to defile me. I'm going to abstain. Now, what Peter's saying is, look, there's certain things and what we're going to find out is certain things that maybe are even legal and considered good in your society that you should probably just abstain from to set yourself apart, to make sure that you're not being defiled. Or his words here, um, he says, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And second, we're to keep. Specifically, our conduct. We're to keep our conduct. Now, notice, this is really fascinating. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Some commentators want to argue. So see, Peter's writing to Jews here. Look at all this Jewish language, and he says, to keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable. And that's not what he's saying. These are Gentile cities that he's writing to. And not only that, but we already know from Jesus' words that the vineyard has been given over to the new tenants. We're the new tenants. 
And so he's using Gentiles in a figurative sense, those who are not living in exile because they've received mercy. So how do we do that? Let me just ask you some questions here as we kind of wrap up. I want you to think about this idea of keeping your conduct honorable. Uh, Keeping your uh, conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Here's some questions to ask. Is my life any different? Is my life any different than anybody else who lives in my neighborhood and who's just a really nice person? My mom was joking this morning, our neighbors must love us that we all, take, we all get up at different times and take three different cars to go to the same place. Very true. But other than going to church once or twice or whatever a week, is my life really any different than just my really nice neighbors? Now, some neighbors, right? It's just, yeah, it's different, right? They're yelling at each other, screaming, things are being thrown. They're yelling at their kids. I think their marriage is in disarray and they keep parking their cars on the, on the lawn. You go, yeah, I'm not them. Well, good for you. And by the way, if you're that person, you're parking your car on the lawn, we love you. You're welcome to be here. We're just gonna help you not do that anymore, right? Okay, so, but is my life any different? Second, is the life that I'm living honorable to God? It may be honorable in your community. It may be, it may be uh, making you a bunch of money. It may be uh, giving you a position. But, but to God, is what you're doing honorable? Is it praiseworthy? Is what I do praiseworthy? That idea of honorable, like where God would say, well done. I like it. Now you say, wow, man, I... My job is just not that job. You know, I, I don't care what you do. Okay, I don't want to pick anybody. I don't care if you, I, I don't care if you're an electrician. I don't care if you're the trash collector. I, I don't care if you're, you, whatever it is you do, you can, our community needs that. I'm really thankful that when I put my trash bins out on Sunday night, that they are cleaned out on Monday. I, that I'm, if they didn't do that, what would our communities look like? I am really happy when somebody comes and they use their skills in my house because they don't have those skills. I'm really glad when somebody plays an instrument because I can't do it. I'm glad when somebody next to me sings in tune because not going to happen. So there's all sorts of, can we be different enough to be doing what God has put before us that it's praiseworthy? And is it good? Is it good? You need to ask yourself, if what I do as a parent is in my occupation and the way that I interact with my spouse and the way that I interact with my neighbors, what if Jesus were following you around? Would you have a different schedule? Well, I, I called in sick today, Jesus didn't really think you would like my job. I, I, uh, uh, sending the kids to the grandparents today, I think that might be better for all of us. Is what you do good? Is it worthy of eternal reward? You have an identity that is so rich and historic and new and life-giving in the person of Jesus Christ that everything we do should be different. And so the application is simple. We need to live in light of who we are. We need to embrace the fact that even though it makes me uncomfortable, I'm called to be a priest. We need to embrace the fact that even though my mind thinks boundaries of nations, that when I'm talking about the church, those lines don't matter. We need to live in light of where we are. And you know what? If you haven't figured it out yet, our nation is not too keen on people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ. It is so ridiculous 
A judge gives somebody a Bible and people freak out. Who cares? Have the Gideons, they'll give you 10 of them if you want. Look, if you want the world to pat you on the back, you are going to be sad. In fact, if you want it to be easy, next Sunday, skip that because Peter says you're going to be sad. But if you want to glorify Jesus Christ, then I've got good news for you. There's a bunch of opportunities. Finally, we need to live in light of where we're going. And that is an eternal home in God's place under God's rule. You know, I was really interested in uh, the reading. I just kind of closed with this uh, this week. And uh, it starts talking about Solomon and, and, uh, and all the things that he built and how he did it. And it says in there that uh, Israel wasn't uh, part of the slave labor here. He says, they were all in charge. And I thought, how, does, how do they all be in charge? I've been to that church before. Everybody's in charge means nobody does anything. Tonight, they were in charge of the horses. They were in charge of these building projects. They just, they just spread out. And that's the picture. You all have authority. And you all have the power. And you have the spirit. And you get to go out and be the people of God every day where he's put you. And it's awesome. Some days I just start to worry. start to worry, what, what is this church going to look like in 10 years? How are we going to keep the doors open? Uh, numbers are going this way. Costs are going this way. And then I remember, oh yeah, we're God's people. And he loves us. And we get to be about what he's doing. And I don't have to have all the answers because I know the person who does. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. And uh, God, I pray that uh, we would leave this place encouraged that uh, you are a God that loves us and has for us this new identity tied into this historic story that is going to accumulate in your kingdom. And so God, let us just enjoy the work that you're doing, even while we're in exile. In Jesus' name, amen.